I'm going to read uh, 1 Samuel, and uh, we're in chapter 14, that's where we're up to. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then uh, Christy's going to come and help us unpack them. So uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 14. And now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, under the pomegranate tree at Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Aja, who was wearing the ephod. And he was son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, and I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on, we will cross over toward them and let us see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up, because that will be the sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into our hands. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, uh, and his armor bearer, sorry, followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Okay, thank you, Christy. As we continue the journey uh, in First Samuel and uh, look at the development of the early monarchy in Israel, we learn uh, so many lessons. Some of the lessons are uh, from positive things, some are from negative things. One of the interesting things, uh, as well as we've made this journey, that the timing of this has been a little bit unfortunate, uh, and the events that are happening right now in Israel probably provide a, uh, a, a bit of a challenging backdrop uh, as we look at God's word, yet we have to trust in God's sovereignty that maybe every single uh, passage that we prepared and every single message has its own very valid timing for us here. So, battles. And the truth is, uh, as we've seen in the passage, it's, uh, it's filled with a challenge of opposition. And uh, the, there's this little sort of intervention, this little mission 
that you see uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer doing, and afterwards the Israelites rout the Philistines. And you may say, well, what's that got to do with us? Uh, right here, right now in Carnforth on this late November. The truth is we're all facing battles, not those kind of battles, not physical, not warfare, but we're all facing battles of one kind or another. And the battles that we're facing, uh, it, it, it could be very much going through seasons. It could be that in a season where you would say, there's a lot of peace in my life. Or you could be going through a season right now where you could say, it feels a little bit like that. It feels like there's a big, big battle going on in my life. And some of them are internal battles uh, to do with our own difficulties and challenges on the inside. And some of them have to do with external things. Could be that the people around you are giving you an incredibly hard time. So whether internal or external, whether in this season or sometimes in the past, very likely in the future, battles are very much part of what we face as human beings. And uh, we, we battle with limitations. We battle with unfulfilled dreams. We battle with difficulties in finances. We battle with challenges to do with our health. We battle with difficulties in our relationships. Brene Brown wrote these words. She says, all of us fight hidden, silent battles against not being good enough, not having enough, or not belonging enough. And she probably captures something that's true and real for many of us in different seasons in our lives. So the context where we find ourselves in is that the Israelites had these arch enemies at the time, and they were called the Philistines. The Philistines were uh, uh, um, mainly seafarers. They, they came from around the area of the island of Crete, and they came and settled what now is actually the sort of western part, uh, which is very similar to the area that Gaza is in, just by the shore of the sea. They were very uh, skilled warriors. They had uh, a group of about five fortified cities, and from there they carried on. They were a key uh, component of the the trade that was going on in the local area because all the ships, all the merchant ships with all the projects were coming on that side and they were the ones that kind of were distributing. So they were bringing things in and distributing things. And as you can imagine, they would have been in a very vulnerable position because all the other ones, all the other nations could come against them and rob them. So they became very, very powerful warriors. Uh, they were very skilled in terms of providing armory at the time, they were one of the very few people that had very developed weapons that they were able to use. And it seemed, based on the story of David and Goliath, they were probably the Vikings of the Middle East. They were very hefty warriors. They were very much feared. The Israelites, on the other hand, were a nomadic people. They were primarily shepherds or they grew crops. They were not warriors by trade. So when they came from the east, from Egypt, crossing into the promised land, they actually, as they fought the other Canaanites, they really didn't get too much into trying to get themselves into trouble with the Philistines, simply because they realized they weren't matching the power. And ever since the time of the judges, uh, all the way onwards, there's this conflict that is kind of raging between the Philistines 
and the Israelites, with very much the Israelites being the weaker part and the Philistines being better equipped and much more skilled as military warriors. So you have the first king, King Saul, who is facing probably his first military challenge at the time. And uh, what you find in the text that uh, Ian just read to us is actually quite, quite depressing because you find Saul being very passive, sitting under a tree, totally intimidated by the Philistines. And what you have as a stark contrast is the king's son, Prince Jonathan. They didn't call, never call him Prince Jonathan, but he was the equivalent of the prince. Prince Jonathan, together with his assistant, with one of his assistant officers, who make this sort of marine-type incursion in the Philistine camp, and just kill 20 people. And there's this stark contrast of how do you face a battle? Do you sit under a tree, uh, petrified, not communicating anything to your warriors? Your own warriors, as much as they were, as these rights, weren't particularly warmongers or uh, those who were skilled soldiers, they began to kind of drift off, hide into caves, thinking these Philistines are going to come after us and it's going to be a real challenge. And the king sits under the tree, almost paralyzed with fear. So you have this contrast in terms of facing the battles. Let me put you a a couple of maps just to give you a little bit of an idea where we find ourselves in the the map to to, to the right, my right, your left, uh, just kind of pinpoints really the area where this battle of Mi'kmash is happening. And here on the other map, you see it a little bit more blown up uh, in that and the different comings and goings in this situation. The terrain looked a little bit like that. It's a bit grim, really. Uh, again, I don't know how many of you are kind of uh, military strategy buffs and thinking, you know, how is this going to play out? But to me, it looks like quite an exposed place, but also very difficult terrain. And the two cliffs where Jonathan and his armor bearer are kind of going in between look something similar to this. So they probably were in a little bit of a vantage point, looking a little bit down at the Philistine camp when they were making this incursion. So what does this have to do with us? How do we fight our battles? What do we see in the way that Jonathan and his armor bearer, in contrast to Saul, approached all of this? And the first thing that strikes me is that I can see a lot of faith. And by a lot of faith, I mean I see God into the picture and into the framework of how Jonathan is thinking, as opposed to Saul, who's sulking under the tree, paralyzed. And at one point, he brings one of the priests with an ephod, but then he kind of says, well, I don't know if you're going to do anything, so he just leaves it. He's so half-hearted about it. While in Jonathan, you can see real clear evidence that actually God is in the picture. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, come, Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. God is entering the scene. He's part of the framework. He's part of the mindset for Jonathan. God is involved for him. And even the language that he uses, the derogatory language he uses to talk about the Philistines, he calls them the uncircumcised. In other words, he says, these are enemies of our our people. These are enemies of God. These are people who are defying God. These are people who are causing us trouble. He identifies the challenge that is there. Then he carries on in verse 10 
And as he speaks to his armor bearer, he says this to him. If they say, come up to us, we will climb, because that will be a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. He's not presumptuous, but he depends on God in the outcome of this. He has faith, and then he says, we'll see what God is saying. So he has the audacity to go against them, but he doesn't rely on his own resources or on his own confidence. It is all about God and about what God can do. And without being presumptuous, he says, let's see what God is leading us to. I feel like I want to go and challenge this man. And maybe in his mind, there was an incident uh, earlier on in the in the book of Judges. The third judge was called Shamgar. And he was one of those guys that, uh, again, Israel didn't have particularly great weapons. But he uh, picked up an ox good, which became a bit of a makeshift weapon. And with that, he killed 600 people. So maybe in Jonathan's mind, there was that memory thinking, if God could do that to that man... God can do something through us. But he put it to test. And then in verse 12, when they do the test and then the Philistines are kind of baiting them to come, the response is this. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. It is all about the Lord. It has nothing to do with them. It is not their ability. It is not their confidence. It is not their courage. It is God's wisdom, God's timing, God's power. What a stark contrast with a king and how he acted. And very much in this, Jonathan is showing that he is trusting God with humility and with faith. This is so uh, amazing, really, that he's ready to act. And... uh, it's almost a contrast, and I've used it at CFM some years ago. Uh, uh, I was saying to the students at Cape Ray last week, uh, I, I used the, the imagery, and some of you might even remember it. I brought in a rocking chair and a wheelchair. Anybody remembers it? I was talking about worry. Nobody. My sermons are really effective. Great stuff. I was even trusting the visual imagery more than the words. Well, there you go. So uh, I, I brought a rocking chair. In the rocking chair, you kind of just stay in the same spot, but you just move backwards and forwards, thinking like there's some sort of movement that takes you anywhere. It doesn't take you anywhere. And what the contrast was, what we need to do, instead of worrying, what we need to do, you know, we need to let God, and God takes us. We are powerless. We get into the wheelchair, and God pushes us around and takes us where we need to be. And it's the same kind of imagery that it's used here, it seems like Saul is in the rocking chair, just back, backwards and forwards, worrying, you know, but not doing anything. While Jonathan is getting himself into the wheelchair, and he's saying, God, would you push me? That's the contrast, and that's the imagery, and that's the power of faith that you see in there. Have faith. That beautiful incident, it's one of my favorite uh, healings that Jesus does in uh, Luke chapter 8, um, sort of verse 43. To 48. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And the woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and she had spent all that she had on doctors, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. I love the faith that this woman has. It's not faith in herself. She's wasted all the faith in others, including the doctors, and she paid a high price for it. 
but she has this deep faith in Jesus that she knows that she doesn't even need to bother him. She doesn't need to do, apart from just touching him. And by touching him, she believes she will be healed. What an incredibly audacious, humble faith in that. So instead of being passive, thinking, well, this is the way it is, she steps out in faith, and Jesus meets her with an incredible healing, almost unconsciously, which is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Have faith. In the battles that we face in our lives, I want to say, let's have faith. But the question is, and here is the practical stuff, how, how do we get this faith? How do we build our faith? How do we nurture our trust in God? And I would say, let's cultivate a right view of God. And for me, a right view of God is both high and close. High in terms of the power of God, close in terms of the intimacy. Our Father, that's close, who are in heaven, that's high. And he's cultivating, constantly cultivating that sense of who is God. That's, that's how we have more faith. It's by spending time allowing our minds and hearts to be so impacted by the truth of who God is that actually we begin to trust him more and more. And the best avenue is to read the scriptures and spend time in prayer. As we read the scriptures, we begin to discover who God is more and more. And our faith gets nurtured. And by praying, we learn to bring all the little things to God that actually builds that confidence constantly. So maybe when the challenging battles are coming on, we already, because we have been in conversation with God, in speaking and listening through prayer, we've already built that confidence to know that we can come to God. I think it's true to say that we often win the war by fighting small battles. Let's be really honest. We sometimes can be a bit naive. We sometimes can think, you know what, I'm not going to read the Bible, I'm not going to pray, but actually when the big challenge is going to come in my life, then I'm just going to click a switch and I'm going to be there. It's not going to work like that. And actually what's going to help is to actually invest in praying and reading the scriptures, maybe while you're in a peacetime, so that the wartime comes on, you're relying on those resources. We're wise to do that. We're wise to do that. Every army knows this. It's not like you've got an active army where people are just fat and lazy, unpracticed, and they just sit and eat kebabs all day and pizzas, and, you know, suddenly, you know, they, they ring the alarm, and you've got to go to fight, and it's like, you know... No, they train every day, they practice, they run through drills, they've got strategy. They're as sharp as sharp could be, so that when that moment of call comes, they're ready, they're prepared. And I think it's the same for our spiritual life. We've got to invest day in and day. That's why we keep on saying, please read the scriptures. Please invest in a life of prayer. Because when those battles will come, that's what, where the strength comes from. And actually, the battle is won in the situation room. Uh, uh, as some of you know, I'm an avid uh, West Wing fan. And one of the interesting things that you observe in terms of particularly foreign policy and the challenges that are happening around the world is how very often the really, really tough decisions are not being taken on the battleground. They're taken in the Situation Room, in the Oval Office. That's for America. I'm sure they have one um, in Downing Street somewhere. But the reality is those kind of decisions are taken not necessarily on the field, but in another place, in another time. 
And the same thing, I think for some of our battles that we're facing in our life, the wisdom won't necessarily come in the moment. The wisdom will come beforehand as we spend time with God. When Jesus was challenged by the enemy in the desert, Jesus already knew the scriptures that enabled him to detect the lie of every single one of the false promises Satan was making to him. And we kind of tend to think, well, you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to give me in the moment. And he may in his grace sometimes do. But I don't think that was the Holy Spirit given. I think just Jesus as a boy going and learning the scriptures and learning God's word. So when the challenge came, he was able to use that because he's already been prepared. So my encouragement to us is to grow this faith like Jonathan had, grow that view and high image of God, that sense of intimacy with God. So when the challenges of life are coming, we really have that great encouragement from knowing that God is in the picture. God is part of the battle, and we're not without somebody on our side. We're not hopeless. We ought not to be discouraged, but to have that confidence in him. The other thing that I really love in this passage is the way the two, the armor bearer and Jonathan, stick together. Have faith, stick together. Armor bearer is an interesting slang. If you've been a Christian for a long time, at least in kind of my circles, armor bearer was a little bit of a slang for a cool brother. Right? And sometimes you do, you do say that, you know, you say to a brother, are you going to be my armor bearer? In, in other words, it's kind of that slang in which you're saying, somebody is going to be on your side. In Yiddish, there's a, there's a word, um, which is quite interesting because it's a Yiddish word and it's a German word. So the word is mensch. Uh, and in German, it's just people uh, or, or human being, a person. And actually in Yiddish, the sense in which it's being used is that it's somebody who's really good, a good person, a moral person, an upstanding person. So very often, you know, I, I'd see on Twitter these days, somebody who maybe would challenge Something inappropriate is being said as anti-Semitic. Somebody would say, you're a real mensch. And it's the same thing, you know, an armor bearer became a bit of a buzzword in Christian circles for somebody who's standing up for you, who's one of your pals who is with you. When you're going through tough stuff, they're praying with you, they're encouraging you, and it's not just men. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are armor bearers in terms of ladies as well. But it's somebody who is a brother or sister in Christ who is there for you. And you have this particular um, armor bearer that Jonathan is going with. We don't know anything about him. He's an anonymous person, and I love that. We don't know who he is, but he probably was. Jonathan would have been an officer, high-ranking officer in the army, and this armor bearer probably would have been an officer himself. Uh, So don't just think bodyguard. It's a little bit more elevated than that. And he plays an important role in encouraging Jonathan in all of this. Look at verse 7. When he hears the plans that Jonathan is sharing with him, he says, do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Wow. What a friend to have, right? What a compatriot. What a fellow warrior. In times when you're going through a battle. And then as the story develops, it says in verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. Right behind him. So in everything, what you see in this man, both verbally and both in action, he's there. 
before they get into the, the challenge, the charge, he's saying, let me assure you, whatever you've got to plan, I'm here for you, and I'm standing with you. And when they get into the action, because sometimes you get people that are like that, they'll give you all the, I'm with you, I'm with you. And when it kicks off, they're like, you're, no, you're, on, you're on your own, mate. <laughs> you're on your own. Been to a few uh, sort of uh, drunken nights out in my days of rebellion, where I've seen all that. You go with a group of five, you know, and they're all big boys, uh, until the challenge comes, and then you just look around, and it's like, where have you gone? And I always was the smallest out of all of them. And that thing is true in life, isn't it? You get people that are saying, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to do that. Sometimes, sadly, uh, uh, somebody you got married to. And when the going got tough or somebody else comes around to turn their heads, you know, they're just gone. And you thought, we're going to do life together. We're going to do business together. We're going to do family together. You know, we're going we're gonna to be together. And they're just gone. Well, this armor bearer isn't like that. So he, he talks a good game, if you want. But he's also there. And I love that it says, you know, Jonathan climbed, you know, up using his hands and feet. And then he says his armor bearer was right behind him. You might say, well, you know, why are you right behind him? Tell you what, your back is the most vulnerable place. You just don't know how the Philistines are going to organize themselves. They could have sent some guys around and actually, you know, it could have felt like, Jonathan was there leading the charge, but I tell you what, your back's vulnerable. I love that this guy is at the back, watching your back. Hey, that's exactly what he does. And both in words and actions, he's ready to risk everything. This was, this was, this was not easy. This was not cheap. This was not one of those things that you do lightly. This was costly. This was, we're going in. If, if we're going down, we're going down, both of us. But he was ready to do that. And Jonathan himself was always like that in his friendship with David. Very risky. But, he, he, you know, you could almost say that in some way, Jonathan was David's armor bearer. He watched his back. When his father Saul was trying to kill David, Jonathan was trying to discourage him. When he saw that that doesn't work, he made sure that he found out the plans and he leaked them. So David could protect himself. In every possible way, he was that kind of an incredible friend in, in, in those relationships. And that was really, really admirable. Sticking together, supporting one another. Jesus himself, he prays for this. When he is praying the high priestly prayer and he's praying for his disciples, one of the things that Jesus prays, he, he, he says this in John 17, in verse 21, he says, Father, I am praying that all of them may be one. That's the very heart of Jesus, unity, support, encouragement. And you see it pictured in, in, in Peter's life. So Peter, and we're not blaming him, we probably all would have done the same, when confronted after Jesus was arrested, he denied Jesus three times. After he's restored, you find him at the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the disciples. And as the whole crowd is baffled, and again, we read it with rose-tinted glasses. I think that Pentecost moment for the disciples could have gone either way. It could have been either stoned to death as heretics, followers of Jesus, or plant the first megachurch. It could have gone either way. 
And a crucial moment, I believe, comes after the people are baffled, and some probably like it, and some probably accuse them of being drunk. In that moment, it says in uh, verse 14 in chapter 2, somebody, Peter, stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and spoke to the crowd. Somebody had to stand up and say something. And that was very admirable because before we find a Peter that chickens out in front of a few servant girls, and now he's in front of a large crowd, but he's able to stand. But a beautiful picture is that that little addition there. Peter stood up with the eleven. The armor bearers showed up, and they stood up. He wasn't on his own this time. Hey, you know what? It's hard to face temptation on your own. It's such a blessing to have an armor bearer or the armor bearers standing up beside you or behind you, saying, we are with you. And this is what is happening, because that's the prayer that Jesus made for unity, and that's what you see in the early church. Stick together. And that's crucial to facing some of the battles in our lives. And I want to say to us, I think it's so important that actually we continue to grow as a community by committing and contributing. God's done some amazing work in our lives, but there is so much more. And he probably will never finish until we get that day before him. But we want to be together as a body of people, a whole bunch of armor bearers who are looking after one another and standing up for one another, particularly in the times when the battles are raging on. One of the dangers is that we can be distant uh, from one another. And some of it may be just the kind of person you are. It's not that you're you're particularly bad, but maybe you're a bit shy, or maybe you're introverted, or maybe you're intimidated by other people. Can I just introduce that word? Let's discover curiosity. Just to be curious about the other person. Start, start with that. Find out who they are, where they're from, a little bit about their life story. Everybody, I'm telling you the secret, everybody's interesting. I've not met one person who's not interesting. And you can sometimes sit for hours as you discover somebody else's life. And it's really, really amazing. So the way to beat maybe that sense of we can feel distant is to develop this curious compassion uh, where we try to find out more about one another. The second one is selfishness. And we're Christians, so of course we're not selfish. We're perfect people, right? Um, Yes, we are Christians, and the Spirit of Jesus is changing us. But there are still the remains of sin, and sin equals selfishness. It's within all of us. We're battling this. It's challenging. And I think there is that uh, sort of uh, uh, danger of selfishness. And again, I plead with us, if we want to be a healthy community that cares for one another, we have two-way traffic in terms of care. Sometimes the challenge in the church is that there are probably some people who are givers, and they give a lot. And maybe there are quite few. And there's a lot of people who are takers. And that creates an imbalance. And you would know this from your own relationships, right? 
We, we know this. You're in a relationship, and if somebody just all the time is a taker and you're a giver, it kind of wears you down, and it, it, it gives room to discouragement and trouble in that. And that's, that can happen in the church as well. There, there can be some needy seasons or needy moments or needy personalities, and unfortunately it creates, it creates a situation. And I'll tell you what it looks like. It's, it's people delve in and help, but when they realize it's one-way traffic, they'll eventually back off. And then that looks really bad, and it feels terrible. So what I'm encouraging us is, is to develop this two-way traffic, all the time think, what can I give? Who can I support? Who can I encourage? Instead of thinking, when is that phone going to ring with somebody saying something, looking after me? You know, why not pick up the phone and ring yourself somebody? It's amazing what that does. I'll never forget it. Uh, it's in the earliest, so it must be 20 odd years. CFM Church was facing that way. And uh, we were kind of all in around. We didn't have the tiered seating. And Pastor Michael, my colleague, um, preached a message, and I, he had a line, a killer line that never left me. And he said this, instead of asking who is going to be my Jonathan I, or my armor bearer, ask yourself the question more often, who can I be a Jonathan for? We have to re, retwist this. So every single time the temptation comes going, and I'm there, I'm there, pity party. I do pity parties, right? You do pity parties. We're there, and you see other people that are being greeted and talked to, and you're thinking, hello, I'm here. Anybody? No. You know, and if you're introverted like me, it's kind of, okay. Just put my head down, and then, you know. It's one of those things for introverts. These are a gift, you know, because in the olden days, what were you doing? Look at the walls, but now you just pick up your phone, and you look like you're busy. You're not busy. You're just thinking, I hope nobody notices I'm on my own and nobody's talking to me and this is really embarrassing. It's really bad at weddings, that. So what do you do? You know, well, maybe kind of think, okay, I'm going to pluck up the courage and it's going to kill me for the rest of the day if you're an introvert and you need to lie down afterwards. But I'm going to go and talk to somebody and say, hello, where are you from? You know, but that creates that two-way traffic. And instead of just sapping one another and always taking or always giving, we have that sense in which we're both giving and taking, and that brings the health there in terms of avoiding selfishness. Uh, and it is about belonging, serving, listening, encouraging. I, I'll really be frank. It, it is one of the most disorienting things and, and challenging things. And I know on Sundays it doesn't always look like there's more people, but in reality there's more people connected to our, our church family. On, on, the, on paper, you know, to anybody who would call CFM as a home and not go anywhere else to church... There's probably about 315, 320 people that, that are there in that sense. And it's in, in that group, it's hard to get to know people. And some of you have come from a situation where you're in a place where you almost knew everybody and you had close relationships and you did meals together. And, and I, I feel the pain of that, what that's like and how challenging that is. So my encouragement is I always say to people, look, just try to... Get involved in one thing, whether it's a ministry, whether it's a connect group, whether it's just a bunch of friends that you make in the church. Because you're not going to get to know everybody, but get to know some people that are going to be your armor bearers in that. And uh, otherwise, it's just really difficult because you end up being very lonely in that. So whatever it is, and it's not a rule that it has to be connect groups or it has to be whatever you feel works at this place in the journey for you in life, but get involved with something 
where you're going to have a connection with some people at CFM that when something's going on in your life, you've got a doctor's appointment, you, you, you've got some numbers you can ring and some people you can chat to and somebody you can have a couple with and say, come on, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Can we pray together about this? So I really encourage you to try to have that sense of belonging in that. And last but not least, a wise saying from uh, somebody Ian and I really loved, um, do for one what you can't do for all. Instead of being paralyzed thinking, I'd love to care for lots of people. There's a lot of needs here. Don't be paralyzed by all the people. Just think, who's the one person I can do one thing for? And that's great, because that's a great start. Because frankly, if we do that, you know, we've got about, I don't know, 200 people in here who are going to do one thing for one person. And I think that's going to take care of a lot of stuff. So let's have that kind of mentality and attitude, not try to freak ourselves out thinking, I can't handle 15 people, but I can do one person. I can do one afternoon. What is it that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is leading us to? So that's the encouragement as we face the battles, looking from Jonathan and his armor bearer. Is that encouragement to look up and build our faith, and that encouragement to look around and have that sense of being in this together and encouraging one another. Battles are hard. Last week was the burial of one of the elders in, in the church in Romania. And uh, he, he always had this smiley face ever since I've known him. And he always had an incredibly uh, amazing demeanor of warmth. But over the last four and a half years, uh, Nick faced some incredible battles with cancer. He was uh, accidentally one of the uh, other guys in the church who's a surgeon, noticed the growth on his, he, was, he didn't have any symptoms, didn't feel poorly, noticed the growth uh, on, on his neck, and he said, you've got, got to go and get that checked out. He got it checked out. They, he had um, operations, he had treatment, and then in the past 18 months, the cancer spread, spread to uh, the, his lungs and his bones. At this time, when he did the interview, he was actually uh, probably about five months ago. He was in severe, severe pain because of the cancer that spread to the bones. And in the interview, he was asked two questions that really, you know, kind of made me think about the battles that we face. And the first one he, he was asked, he says, how do you feel about death? You've obviously kind of walked this battle with cancer for, a, for years now, for a long time. You know, how do you feel as now the doctors have sent you home and they said, there's nothing we can do. We're just trying to give you some painkillers, strong painkillers, but that's about it. There's nothing we can do. And he said with that kind of faith that, you know, you see, he says, how can, be, I, I, how can I be anything but glad to have my dream come true? He says, my dream has always been to meet with the Lord Jesus. Always. It's the end, end, end goal of my life. And how can I be anything but incredibly excited about that? Genuinely. He says, that's what I've wanted. That's been the longing of my heart. And now I get to experience it. And then the interviewer asked uh, the next question. They said, well, you know, but don't you find it difficult in some way? And he said, I did for a while. Initially, he was thinking about my children and my grandchildren and my wife and the whole of the rest of the family. But he said, in one of my quiet times, as I spent time with the Lord, and I told him about it, 
the Lord said to me, he said, Nick, have you been looking after your family? Really? And Nick said, well, I kind of, you know, earned some money and put some food on the table and clothes and all that. He says, God asked me again the question, Nick, have you been looking after your family? I said, Lord, I think I know what you're getting to. He says, no. He says, Nick, who's been looking after your family? Lord, it's you. Nick, who do you think is going to look after your family in the future? Lord, I know it's you. And there is that sense as we face these battles that we need to fill our minds and hearts with him and who he is. Let's quieten our hearts to pray. Let's just quieten our hearts. As I've been preparing this message, I sense that the Lord wanted to meet in a particular way with some people this morning. If that word battle is something that's real to you right now, in whatever form or shape, If you were to be asked the question, do you feel like you're in a battle this morning, right now? And that's you. I just want to encourage you to to stand where you are. As I really feel a deep desire to pray for you this morning. I'm going to stand and I would have stood anyway. So you can join me as, as I'm standing, as I pray for us. I think the Lord wants to seal something special. That he sees you. That he sees the pain. He hears your cries. And you're not alone. You're not alone. Father, when I first looked at this passage... I thought, what has this got to do with us right here, right now in Carnforth? And yet the more I looked, the more I saw that it has a lot to do with us as we're all facing these battles. And this morning, Lord, I just want to pray that you, the God of amazing grace, The God who created the world. The God who sustains the universe. The God who in his kindness didn't spare his one and only son. The God who wept when his friend Lazarus died. The God who touched those who are sick 
the God of compassion, love, and power. I pray that you will hear the cries of all those who are standing, who are saying, Lord, right now, I feel like Jonathan. I'm looking at the battle. I see a lot of Philistines better equipped, stronger, fearsome. Yet, Lord, this morning, I'm calling out to you, and I'm asking for your help. We pray that in the name of Jesus, you will see every heart cry. You would touch every body who is filled with sickness. You would speak your peace over every mind that is restless and anxious. You will have mercy on relationships that are strained and broken. Lord, do good to your people as we look to you. You are our hope. You are our rock. You are our tower of refuge. You are our shield. And in you we put our trust this morning. Amen.